Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision parties criticized him, saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now I enjoyed hearing the story last week from the Queen's Royal Protection Officer, Richard Griffin. He was walking with the Queen near the Balmoral Estate, and they bumped into some American hikers who evidently didn't recognize her, and she didn't let on. When they asked if she'd ever met the Queen, she said no, but he sees her regularly. And they ended up having their photo taken with the Royal Protection Officer instead of the Queen. Now, some of you are wondering why I've started the sermon with that story. Some of you, because I didn't tell it very well, and it wasn't as funny as when Richard Griffin told the story. And others of you, because I told it at the beginning of the sermon last week, and it was a lot funnier then. <laughs> so why am I telling that story all over again? Well, because some stories are so good, they're worth telling twice. And that is what we've got in Acts 11. Of course, every moment in the Bible is worth telling twice. This is the word of God. It is a treasure that is worth hearing again and again. But there are a few moments in the Bible that God himself thinks are so important, he repeats them even within the text of scripture. And the conversion of Cornelius, this account that we just had read to us in Acts 11, is one of them. Uh, it's the same story that most of us heard from Acts 10 last week, and it's here again. God's outpouring of the spirit on the Gentiles, the nations. His warm embrace of all peoples. It is displayed for us in glorious technicolor again. 
God shows no partiality, we were told last week. And this week we're told the same thing again. And we're even going to get it referred to again later in the series in Acts 15. So why? Now surely it's pretty run-of-the-mill, isn't it? It's quite an obvious idea for many of us. God shows no partiality. He offers his forgiveness to all. It was a simple message. A message so simple that the sermon I preached last week was uncharacteristically short. Now, there weren't many of us who struggled to keep up. So why does it warrant repeating? Well, because even though God shows no partiality, we do. There are people that we find it easier to get alongside. More often, people like us are those who are easier to talk to, easier to serve, easier to invite or reach out to. And while serving other people like us is still serving, it's still a good thing to do, it's not enough. The gospel doesn't advance if we only focus on those who are like us. The gospel doesn't breach borders if we don't go beyond our favorites. The nations don't get reached if we keep it just to people like us. More than that, when we show partiality, we suggest that God is like that. He is a God who shows no partiality. But when we focus just on our favorites, we give the impression that God exercises favoritism. When we show partiality, we give the impression that we serve a God who is only for some people, a lesser God, a smaller God. We end up misrepresenting him. Of course, favoritism is not a uniquely modern problem. From the unwilling selfishness of the prophet Jonah through to the reluctance of Peter that we'll see in a moment, the Bible is filled with people who needed to be corrected for their self-centered favoritism. And the circumcision party in our passage is a classic example. At verse one of our passage, 11 verse one, now the apostles and the prophets who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Uh, last week, Peter headed up from Joppa to Caesarea. There's an attempt at a map on the handout there. You can see it's really just a cartoon, but it shows you something of the travel movements. So this whole bunch of non-Jewish people, and they were given this dramatic conversion experience. It instantly became the talk of the town, and not just the town, in fact, the whole region. And so we meet this group called the Circumcision Party, which really sounds like the sort of party you don't want to be invited to, doesn't it? <laughs> in fact, it really isn't the sort of group that you want to join. Uh, they were a group who had so misunderstood the Old Testament that they thought God was only interested in Israel. For them, Israel was the favorite. And so they were particularly obsessed with the things that had marked out Israel, circumcision, hence the name, and all of the food laws that fill passages like Leviticus 11. And so for Peter to go to the house of a Gentile and more than that, to eat with him and to speak to him the word of God. Well, it was scandalous in the extreme. It was throwing open the doors in an outrageous way. In this modern era of public access and live streaming, I guess we're increasingly used to access. But even still, we have some sense of areas that are restricted. You think about those gates that surround Buckingham Palace that so many people have been crowded around because they can't get through a clear vision of restricted access. For Peter to throw open the doors of God's kingdom here is 
scandalous on the scale of the gates of Buckingham Palace being thrown open. It's as though he's inviting everyone to tea with the king. And you, well, you can't quite imagine it, can you? And the circumcision party couldn't imagine it either. It didn't fit with their favoritism. It didn't fit with their view of God. They served a lesser God, a smaller God. And so Peter responds to them and to us by exposing the folly of such favoritism. No, folly is too weak a word. The evil of such favoritism. It's not acceptable. He goes as far as to say it is standing in the way of God. We might not care that much about impartiality in God. We might think that we know it already. But until we see how much God is committed to it, we'll always be very forgiving of our own light favoritism. Until we see how important it is to God, we'll be in danger of misrepresenting him. Some moments matter to God so much that he repeats them in the text of scripture itself. And this is one of them. So we've got chapter 11. It's basically a repeat of chapter 10 with lots of the narrative slimmed down. And what Peter draws our attention to is a heavy emphasis on the idea of global, the idea of global inclusion being God's idea, which takes us to our first points. Don't worry, that was deliberately a long introduction. Our first point, the inclusion of the nations was commanded by God. The inclusion of the nations was commanded by God. Verse four. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey, and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. It's possible to think that Peter was just having an off day. After all, we're told back in chapter 10 that he was actually quite hungry before he saw this. And maybe he just got so hungry, he ended up struggling to make decent decisions. You know that moment when you're caught off guard and everything is closed and the only thing you can get into is McDonald's. I wouldn't normally eat there, but there's nothing else. That decision uh, that you regret later, nothing against McDonald's, other fast foods. Um, other fast food restaurants also exist and are equally delightful. <laughs> but that wasn't what was going on here. Peter was clear. He wasn't in those, one of those starving, dazed, so hungry I could eat a horse sort of moments. It's not that he didn't know what he was doing. No, he was looking at this vision closely, we're told. He thought about it. Indeed, initially, he was resistant to the idea, the mere idea of eating unclean foods. And very clearly, a voice from heaven said, what God has made clean, do not call common. It's interesting, isn't it, that that attitude of favoritism that the circumcision party were guilty of was widespread. Even Peter needed to be told three times, don't call it common if God hasn't. And so it's clear, isn't it, that the decision to include the nations was not like an indiscreet trip to McDonald's. It wasn't anything like that. It was the clear result of Peter responding to a divine command. 
In fact, we're supposed to see Peter a bit like one of the prophets of old. Many of us will know of Jonah from the Old Testament, sent to proclaim God's message of repentance to a big, uh, big city of non-Jewish people. He also reluctant to go, and then after some persuasion, uh, ended up heading to them. But what's interesting here is how many points of comparison we've got. Here's Peter, sent to non-Jewish people, a sent again with a message of repentance. Verse 18 says, God granted repentance to them. And the message, uh, the command he received in chapter 10, rise and go, is exactly the same as the one that Jonah was sent, uh, Jonah was given. He was even ended up leaving from the same city of Joppa. It doesn't come up often in the Bible, but it's where Jonah left from. It's where Peter left from. Now, the point is to say that Peter is like a modern Jonah. He's not acting on a whim. On the contrary, he was initially resistant by no means, Lord. He is a New Testament Jonah-like person responding to the command of God. And that should surely be enough for us. This is what God wants. But Peter takes it further. He says, the inclusion of the nations was commanded by God and confirmed by the Spirit. Confirmed by the Spirit. For a start, you get the Spirit's speech in verse 12. Uh, Verse 12, the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. Uh, Peter seems to hear the voice of the Spirit who confirms everything that he's seen in the vision. Just as he was prohibited from calling something common when God says it's clean, so now he's told not to turn up his nose at these visitors. The audible voice of the Spirit is not the normal way that the Spirit speaks. There's a link on the handout if you want to hear some talks more about that. Or if you haven't been to it before, the Knowing God weekend later this term will be a great place to explore that. But here at least, Peter is clearly receiving some kind of special revelation from the Spirit to confirm this earth-shattering idea that he's already seen in the vision. God really does show no partiality. And then when he gets to Caesarea, the Spirit gives even further confirmation. Verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Now, according to chapter 10, that pouring out of the Spirit was followed by speaking in tongues. We knew that they'd received the Spirit because they started speaking in tongues and extolling God. And we talked about this back in Acts chapter 2 last year, but it's worth saying again. Speaking in tongues is not the normal experience of receiving the Spirit. It only happens three times in Acts. It's very rare elsewhere in the Bible. But Peter is keen to emphasize that it happened just as it did in Acts 2. This is a kind of second Pentecost moment. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Or verse 17, God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us. He makes it clear this is the same because the significance of of, of tongues in Acts 10 is the same as the significance of tongues in Acts 2. Back in Acts 2, when the Spirit was first poured out, speaking in different tongues, different languages, was a reminder that a new age had begun and the gospel was to go to the ends of the earth, to people of all languages. You can check out the talk, a later link on the handout if you want to hear that talk again. And so this second significant outpouring of the Spirit, this second Pentecost, is reminding us again that a new age has begun and the gospel is going out to the ends of the earth, to the nations, to the people of different tongues. God the Father and God the Spirit are united in their witness. The inclusion of the nations really is God's idea. 
And then as if to complete the Trinitarian perspective, Peter turns to Jesus. Commanded by God, confirmed by the Spirit, and commissioned by God the Son. Thanks to those who helped me find another C. Uh, Verse 16 is in some way simply confirming what we've already said. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's a memory of the very beginning of Acts when Jesus promised that the Spirit would be poured out on believers. Uh, So says Peter, if God gave the same promised Spirit to them, it confirms that they really are believers. And yet I think that quote from chapter one is especially well chosen. Just flick back to it, would you? Page 1095. Keep a finger in Acts 11, but just flick back to 1095, Acts chapter one, where we're looking at the last words of Jesus before he ascends into heaven. Here he uh, promises that the spirit is gonna be given to them. Acts chapter one and verse five. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's the quote. But let's keep reading. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Do you see, when Peter is quoting this moment from Acts 1, there is a sense in which he's simply describing the point when the Spirit um, uh, was promised to confirm what he's already said. But he's also taking us back to the very moment when Jesus himself commissioned a worldwide mission. He's referring to that agenda-setting, epoch-changing conversation when God the Son commissioned his followers to extend the news of his reign to the far reaches of the globe. This isn't just Peter's idea. As someone put it to me in an email this week, this isn't some bizarre fever dream misinterpreted by Peter when he was put on the spot, but actually a thrilling fulfillment and turning point. This is the very purpose and plan of God himself, commanded by the Father, Confirmed by the Spirit, commissioned by the Son. I mentioned earlier that Peter's actions were a bit like someone throwing open the gates of Buckingham Palace and inviting people in for tea. But earlier this year, something like that actually happened to my parents. Uh, They got a letter through the post from someone that they had never heard of, inviting them to go to Buckingham Palace and to spend the afternoon there. And inevitably the question comes up, where had the invitation come from? Because some invitations like that you really shouldn't try and take to the front desk, uh, to, the, to the gates. But it turns out the invitation came from someone called Andrew Parker, the former head of MI5. And more importantly, now the Lord Chamberlain, the most senior officer in the royal household. But the real reason that the invitation carried weight is written on the top of it. The Lord Chamberlain is commanded by Her Majesty to invite Mr. and Mrs. Shepherd to a garden party at Buckingham Palace. Please don't ask me about that garden party. I wasn't there. And it is far less significant than the invitation that we have been given. The Lord Chamberlain, he's a pretty big name in the royal household, but Her Majesty was a much bigger name. The invitation carries weight because Her Majesty had commanded it. Peter was a pretty big name among the believers in Jerusalem. He was an apostle. 
If he had just said it on his own, that would have been reason enough for us to listen. But in order to press home the point more strongly, to show how much God cares about it, he name drops on a much bigger scale. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You can see this invitation carries weight because it, well, God the Holy Trinity explicitly commanded it. I'd have loved to have been there when he had that conversation with the circumcision party. Can you imagine? You went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Yeah, 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 totally, no, fair enough, that that is what happened, yeah. Just one thing. Uh, I was told to do it by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Which which member of the Godhead was it that you wanted to uh, pick it up with? Verse 17, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? No favorites, no partiality. God offers his forgiveness to all. And if you stand in the way of it, you're standing in the way of God. Of course, some people do. And the history of the church is marred with examples of those who have ignored this teaching. I was talking to Wes a couple of weeks ago, who leads our city ministry here, and he pointed out to me how important this chapter and the chapter before have been in the history of the church. When people have tried to claim that God has a favored race, these verses pointed out how wrong, how evil that statement is. And yet it's troubling to see that racist attitudes still exist today. Jason Roach is a black British pastor serving a church but further down the river who's spoken about the racism that has been woven into the fabric of his experience growing up in the UK. That even the church he leads, even his own thinking, uh, has been affected by elements of that racist teaching, uh, the racist thinking that they need to uncover. It's possible for some Christians to become convinced that they're inferior because of the discriminatory, discriminatory attitudes of those around them. Here is a reminder that whoever you are, wherever you are from, you are welcome. God shows no partiality. He's written that impartiality in bright neon letters throughout the pages of Acts. He doesn't have favorites. Your gender, your ethnicity, your class, they're not relevant to God's welcome. You're not lower down the list. He loves you and he welcomes you without favoritism. As for some of us, we won't even realize how much of an issue it is for others. In the wake of George Floyd's tragic murder in the States a couple of years ago, I was struck by how poorly I understood the experience of so many in the UK. How personally affected many of you guys were by the news reports that came up, by the Black Lives Matter movement. For those of us who are part of the majority culture, I wonder how much we're aware of the everyday experience of others in the church family, of what it's like to be favorites in a world that is so partial. Do we all ache over the racism that's still experienced by so many in this country? Do we long for, do we pray for St. Helens to be a kind of oasis that reflects the impartiality of our gods? Do we pray that we would be a church family that embraces the wonderful and varied diversity of London? It's a glorious thing to see how the 6 p.m. over the years that I've been a part of it, and it's been quite a few, has changed 
to be increasingly diverse. It's been encouragement to me how many people have said how welcome they've been made to feel at St. Helens. Praise the Lord. Be encouraged. But if people visit St. Helens, I wonder what sort of God they think we worship. If you're visiting this evening, what sort of God do you think we worship? One who welcomes all or one who's only for some people? A lesser God? A smaller God? Please, if you think that we're getting something wrong, would you come and tell me? I'll be down here at the end. Please, find me another time. And tell me the things that, we think, that you think we need to improve. Because surely there are some things we need to improve. And please, would you improve the things that you can? Because while it's right to point out areas where we notice partiality in others, this is something that all of us need to think about. First and foremost, it is an invitation for each of us to ask, do I really believe in an impartial God? Do I represent an impartial God? Do I take God's global offer to all kinds of people or just those who are like me? Have I created no-go areas, areas that I just won't go to take the gospel? Or am I impartial? Do I stand in the way or alongside our impartial God? I was humbled by Jason Roach's example of that thinking in his book, Healing the Divides. I've only recently started reading it. There's lots more for me to read. But I was humbled because rather than pointing the finger at those who have been racist towards him, his personal examples are often about ways that he himself has been convicted. His first concern is to bring his own thinking in line with our impartial God. Let's make sure that we do the same. This passage, Acts 11, is a brutal death blow to any hints of racism. It is unambiguous. If you resist God's global proclamation, you are opposing God. As the overwhelming force of God's global project careers towards the nations, are you going to stand in the way or alongside? Some of us might want to make excuses. I don't need to actively do anything so long as I'm not opposing it. I'm not like the circumcision party. But that's not quite enough, is it? Peter, for Peter, it meant traveling to Caesarea and speaking to Cornelius. And sure, we're not like Peter. We're not apostles. We aren't the unique witnesses of Christ's resurrection. But every Christian has been given the Spirit because we are prophets. As we saw in Acts 2 last year, and that link on the handout, you can check it out later. The Spirit has been given to us so that we can proclaim Jesus' message. In that sense, we've all been sent Will we go with the impartiality of God's? And yet while this passage presents a clear challenge, it also sends us out with confidence, doesn't it? Because it's not just our private prejudices that hold us back from taking the gospel out. It is the world out there often, I think, telling us not to impose our beliefs on other people, telling us not to share a message of repentance with the world around us. But if God has set the whole world in his sights without partiality, then we're right to take the gospel to everyone. If Jesus is the Lord of all, offering his peace to all, then we're obligated to extend his offer to everyone. If he offers his free forgiveness to everyone without favoritism, then it is with the weight of God's own compassion that we're driven out into the world. 
when I'm told by someone to stop, I have to acknowledge that I am compelled by the overwhelming force of God's global project. Who am I to stand in God's way? Though maybe you want to find a different way of saying that. I think we're particularly anxious when the call to repentance is controversial. No one likes to be told to turn away from their sin. But all of us need to be called to repentance. True inclusivity, true impartiality means repentance proclaimed to all without distinction. And wonderfully, graciously, God is truly inclusive. Verse 18, they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. The impartiality of God means that he commissions his message of repentance to be sent to everyone. And so as the overwhelming force of God's global project careers towards the nations and urges them to repent, are you gonna stand in the way or are you gonna stand alongside? Some moments matter to God so much that he repeats them in the text of scripture itself. And in order that we don't stand in the way of the overwhelming force of his global project, God has repeated this story, slimmed down, but with one message loud and clear. The inclusion of the nations is his idea, commanded by God, confirmed by the Spirit, commissioned by the Son. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So as we finish, here's the question. Where do you stand? Let me lead us in a prayer. Our Father, we praise you so much that you are an impartial God. Thank you that your compassion extends to all people. And so we pray that we would be men and women who similarly show no partiality, who embrace that same compassion for all, and who look forward to that day when you gather in people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation around the throne of the Lord Jesus to exalt him and praise him forever. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.